It's poverty. It's crime. Unemployment. Corruption. Accountability. The energy crisis. Inflation. We are worried. That South Africa has myriad problems on all fronts is a given. But the time has come for us to look for real solutions. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this MoneyWeb podcast will discuss those solutions on how South Africans can solve problems by having tough conversations and drawing on the insights of South Africa's top business leaders. Welcome to Fix SA. Welcome to another episode of Fix SA here on MoneyWeb, brought to you by the Industrial Development Corporation. Muzi Kuzwayo is a well-known business leader. He is a societal thinker and a writer. And in a new book called South Africa's Promise, he asks a very pertinent question. If you don't change things, who will? He raises issues around the development of a citizen safety service and that our leaders, he suggests, should focus instead on creating harmony and not division. Easier said than done. Bright ideas, he says, do make the future bright. And he's going to share some of those thoughts with us today. A very warm welcome to Fix SA. I'm Jeremy Maggs, and our guests have in coming weeks be asked how they can make things better how we can make things better. How do we improve matters? How in the shortest space of time can we once again become a competitive and successful nation? It's something that we all aspire to. So let's listen to him. And Musi Kuzwaya, a very warm welcome to Fix SA. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. I hope I can contribute something. So I'm sure you will. So let me reference your book, first of all, South Africa's Promise, Creating the Future We Want. You say, why should you be shackled to the frozen shadows of history that you can't change when you can bask in the glory of a future that you can create? It's a very optimistic line. Do you think that South Africa right now is shackled to frozen shadows? Yeah, it's easy. But I think the frozen shadows are starting to fall as well. This reminds me of 1988, very much 1988, and probably even earlier. Well, in 86, I remember the state of emergency was imposed and the gloom that it created and people not knowing what to do. Uh, Companies closing down, township businesses shutting down. And all we were ever doing was protesting. And I come from Springs. I remember the one evening about 25 people were shot by the police. Or that's that's the number of corpses that they released for burial. So we don't know the actual number that night. And, you know, when you look back at that and where we were in 1994, I feel that something big is about to come. Something that's going to change our history or the cause of history and make it positive. You've got to go through the winter for you to get through spring and to summer. And we are in the a winter season right now. A lot of things have gone wrong, some out of our own making and some probably outside of our own making. But it's in the course of the history of nations we are on course, I believe, to be successful. And I'll tell you why. I was speaking to a diplomat. We've got a lot of South Africans who've left the country. A British diplomat, he said to me, you know, we've seen this in London. When a country doesn't go right, people move to the UK have careers, and then when things turn, the guys will get a call. They'll probably be on a rainy day and say, hey, we've got an opening for you to come and run our office Mm. in Johannesburg. And the guy says, oh, my God, it's raining in Joburg. It's the sunshine. And he packs up and comes back. And then we get people who've got experience, who've seen the world, who've got contacts, and things change again. What is that big change that is coming that you foresee? I see great success for a lot of young people. I don't think it'll be like a 
a bolt of lightning and thunder as it get in Joburg afternoons. Uh, often change is very incremental. I mean, you drive, a tree was pretty naked, and the next thing you see, it's all purple again. You know, it's jacaranda season. Oh, my God, when did it happen? Mm. That's how it happens. So I think there's certain things that, that are going to happen, obviously, many, a great many beyond our control. We did not see the Berlin Wall fall until it fell, and apartheid, they couldn't keep apartheid going anymore. Much the same with the Arab Spring. Much the same with the Arab Spring. And, you know, in a lot of instances, there'll always be false dawns, and you think that it's gonna, this is it. And, but you've got to keep the, the hope alive uh, through all of the other mishaps and false promises that happen in its life. Far be it from me to prick your bubble of optimism, but mm. let me challenge you. Yeah. Um, you talk about great things happening potentially for young people in South Africa. They have, or we have a 50% at least unemployment rate among that cohort yes. of people. They are impatient. They are frustrated. They are angry. Yeah. They're bitter. And many have given up. How do you bring them back into the fold in order for them to participate in whatever the great things are that you foresee for that group? Jeremy, I don't have a bubble of optimism. I have a steel ball of optimism. I nearly died when I was about three or four years old. I've got a scar under my neck. My neck was cut open by a horse um, with a rope of a horse. And, and all I remember, I asked, this is one of the last conversations I had with my mom, by the way. It was purely coincidental. I said, Ma, do you remember I got hurt by a horse? And she said, yeah, you were with me. All I remember is screaming and running back home. And then the next thing I remember was bandages all around me. And oh, I remember the ambulance and the bandages around me. So ever since that day, just being alive, I've got every reason to be optimistic. Unemployment is high. We've never seen it before like this. We've got the worst unemployment in the world, according to the World Bank. Mm. I mean, when I started working, there were basically, I can safely say there were very, there's practically nobody, no black people in, in middle class. And they happen now. They're there. So these changes happen. And I, I cannot come up with, this is what is going to happen. I don't want to be a Sangoma or an economist. <laughs> economists do that. But I have every reason to believe. I have the faith and the reason. We've got a, a largely educated workforce unemployed and I saw this in India around 1985 I remember reading this in Pace magazine that people with PhDs were bus drivers and then when the internet technology came it just grew you know they had the people who were educated enough to be able to handle it I'll accept the steel ball of optimism then, but what I will ask you is what needs to happen in order to catalyze that change? Yeah. You know, the first thing that actually needs to go is black economic empowerment, of which I'm a beneficiary, by the way. Mm. I read a book, End of an Empire, and it talked about how, when they looked at various empires, how they came to an end, whether it was the Portuguese Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Russian Empire. When you start to exclude people, when, or they feel excluded, sometimes it's perception, they feel excluded, they leave the country. And once they've left the country, you suffer like we are suffering now. So you get entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs, who go and try something else somewhere because they feel excluded. And then people who are not entrepreneurs, who are workers, of which many are, most people are actually, then run out of options as well. So if we do that and we get everybody back, imagine if you can get a guy... Uh, I mean, Elon Musk is the, is the easy one, isn't it? But there are a lot of other South Africans who are entrepreneurs down over there. 
I had a chat with somebody from Israel who told me that, you know, they've got what, what in Israel they call um, Silicon Valley in the mm-hmm. desert, mm-hmm. As, as it were. And what he did, what, what they, what, somebody went to the U.S., came back, invested, made huge amounts of money, and then the other guys followed. So that's the kind of thing that we need to do. There are certain things that were introduced, and I'm sorry to say it, by the Oppenheimers. It started with the Brentus uh, Initiative, which brought BE, which was against the ANC's policy of non-racialism. But people saw an opportunity to make money, and they made money. So it's, those are some of the things that we must get rid of because they'll change our economy unbelievably. That's not necessarily a popular view in, in South Africa. It so was not how pop- would you, it wasn't popular then. How do, you, how do you get rid of black economic empowerment given that the concept has become so entrenched in South Africa? Where do you start if, if that's one way of fixing things? You scrap the act. You scrap the act. Which it's, needs political will. Which needs political Which probably will. doesn't exist. Well, the people involved are making money out of it. You did say we can't, it's not just airy-fairy. We have gangsters running the country, uh, starting with the president. They're breaking the country apart, stealing money. Um, we know that. And um, now he's got his own private police force called the SIU. Uh, when he doesn't like he go, he goes and investigates you. We see what Praveen Gordon is um, doing to Mpumakwana. And Mpumakwana, I know him personally, is one of those people who are just committed to helping other people. We're talking um, about the chairman of ESCOM who has just uh, resigned. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Who has been in conflict with the minister. Absolutely. Over the appointment of the chief Absolutely. executive. Absolutely, mm-hmm. you know. So what we've got to stop having as Africa, we, I'm not sure we can stop having, can't tell people this. There are no messiahs. Praveen Gordon is not a messiah. There's no, uh, Ramaphosa is not a messiah. I can't be a messiah. You can't be a messiah. We must have that requisite cynicism against in science you've got you've got you got to have requisite a certain kind of cynicism when somebody comes up with a new idea or new knowledge and we must hold the same with all people in public office but you can't be overly cynical otherwise you're not going to uh, make any progress at all so you've got to find that balance between cynicism on the one hand and a, a degree i guess of your steel ball optimism on the other. Absolutely, but difficult there's got to be... Difficult to find. But, but that's what life is, isn't it? It's, it's not a, as Benoit Man, uh, Mandelbrot observed, trees aren't circular, perfectly circular, or they, there's a lot of rough, a lot of fractions and fractal stuff in it. And we've got to live with that. You know, we've got great institutions that exist, but unless they've got statesmen and stateswomen who support them, Nothing is going to happen. Nothing is going to grow. And the requisite cynicism is a part of it. Let me pivot to one of the ideas that you um, suggest in your book, citizen service. You say will greatly reduce unemployment. Uh, You suggest that candidates earn a stipend and the stipend would alleviate financial pressure at home. Rolls very nicely off the tongue. Um, What is citizen service? Why would it help? And can we afford it? You know, okay, let me start, I want to start about can you afford something? It's something that, you know, a lot of people experience. You've got 20 rand, okay, 25 rand because bread is now. You've got to make a call. You take a taxi and go find a job, begging people for jobs, house to house, office to mm. office, or you buy a loaf of bread. Those are the kind of decisions that often we have to make. So back in the early 60s, uh, Germany had to make a call whether they made university education free for all, or could they afford it? They couldn't really afford it. They just come out of a war, which they had lost. One of the people who opposed it was Pope Benedict, Bishop Mm -hmm. Ratzinger. 
I always say <laughs> he couldn't finish his papers. He probably God was so angry with him <laughs> that he said, you, you get off my head. Mm. Um, uh, he's, he's, he really opposed it. So you can't not teach people responsibilities and expect them to be able to handle those responsibilities later on. So how are you going to make people know each other? A guy from Vanda, you make him travel and go work in the Western Cape. He's never seen the sea, probably. He'll never get an opportunity to see the sea unless he gets a good job. And it creates cohorts. And that's where a lot of opportunities actually lie among cohorts. People who've been together, who've worked together, either been at school together, at university together, or even when they first started, as in the case of a civilian service, what it will do is that some will go on to be bankers, others entrepreneurs, they'll be able to call each other. And how do banks make decisions? It's really on trust. The first loan I ever got uh, from a bank uh, to start a business, I remember this old man saying to me, will you bring your mother to the meeting next time? So I went and fetched my mom and said, Mom, so we drove. And he said, Mom, we like this boy. That's the word he said. He used, we like this boy. But we don't, and we know we can't afford to pay it back. I don't have any assets. I've just started working. Will you make sure that he pays our loan back? That's how Sambo was built. That's how Allied was built. So that was the model. But now you've got a lot of people who've never, who don't trust the people they see on the other side. So, oh, you're risky. And how I know this, um, in my younger days, I had a private banker. So I applied for a loan. And then the estate agent picked it up, obviously told somebody in the bank. The interest rate I was getting from my private banker, from the same bank, by the way, was 2% lower mm. than that I was getting from the estate agent. I can't see anything else except for the fact that I'm black because this is exactly the same application for the same house. The other ones didn't know what was happening. My private banker was a black person. So were they going to give me money to start a business? But if, they, if you're cohorts and you've worked together, you were the civilian service together, you know when you trust each other. What would your citizen service entail? Firstly, you've got to move away from home. You can run it through churches and that kind of thing. You know, Jeremy, there's something I... There's a book I read, Stand Up Straight, I think it's the title of the book. A lot of princes from the Middle East send their children to, to Sandhurst Military School. And the first thing they have to learn is how to make a bed. There are a lot of kids who've never had a bed in their lives. And how are you going to have confidence in a boardroom if you've never made a bed? Um, so it's all of those little things to give you confidence. That's the main aim, to teach you responsibility, to give you confidence. And then you'll be able to handle anything. And confidence is the key. And we saw that during COVID. Uh, so I read an article in Harvard Business Review that if a person can't show their face on Zoom, they certainly don't have the confidence to make a decision. If you don't have the confidence to show your colleagues, your own colleagues, their face, you will not have the confidence to make a decision. So part of what you're suggesting is very utopic. Mm. Uh, it is very aspirational. But you also go on to say that um, Africa, and by that um, South Africa, uh, is, and uh, I have the chapter in front of me, uh, is a hard hood. Yeah. You go on to say that we have problems with rebels and bandits. How do you marry that vision of utopia that you're proposing with the hard reality that exists on the continent and in this country? Well, you start small. You start in a small place and you, you create a center of excellence. 
I was reading your book, My Final Answer. And he has dad thinking, man, this guy, I want him to be a banker to work in Edinville. <laughs> thank, you for, th- thank you for reading the book. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. I read it online. Don't try and force me into banking. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, um, the route, you probably saw, I'm, I'm speaking for him here, of course. The route was banking. But hey, you're successful. You know, mm-hmm. At least you don't need his, his pay so, to take care of you. So, but that's the kind of thing. We can't control how people are going to live and give and straitjacket them. What we want is we want responsible citizens who don't have to depend on grants. Let's move on to the ideas economy, if we can. Some A place that you have played in a mm. lot during mm. your career. And you talk about uh, bright ideas making the future bright. There's no doubt that South Africa and Africa is brim full of bright ideas. Mm. Often the problem, though, Muziko Zwayo, is taking those ideas into reality. And you say that young people have got to play their part in building and developing the future of the country. How do you optimize good ideas? The first thing you need is you need the ideas. You need a bank of ideas, lots of ideas, um, kind of throw them on the wall. Some will succeed and some won't. Mm-hmm. The problem comes when bureaucrats decide which are great ideas and then they try and force those down. So what you want to do is you're going to give young people as many opportunities as possible to have to come up with ideas. I remember at Huntless Carus, the agency where I worked, and I was CEO of TBWA, Huntless Carus, we had about 20 young kids from Soweto, and they could come up with a lot of different ideas. Some work and some don't. But firstly, you've got to give them the opportunity to come and dream, make mistakes. And after working on so many ideas, I think it's... um, it's hard to pick this one and say this one is going to work. You're going to have some failures along the way. I think the internet was uh, invented in, 1970, in the early 1970s. And then there was a big dot bomb. And look at how now we can't live without it. So if somebody died immediately after the dot bomb and you met them in heaven and you told them that the internet it was resuscitated and it worked, he's going to say, what? I lost a lot of money on that. So that's how ideas work. Part of it, I guess, is the ability as well to fail forward. And it's difficult to teach young people how to fail because often uh, there is a despondency that sets in. And again, predicated on your big argument that it's up to young people who are going to fix this country. We've also got to learn, surely, how to cope with, deal with and, and recover from failure. Um, you know, it's, it's easy for the likes of you and I who have tried things and failed and moved on. But often a sense of demoralization sets in when you fail, and that can be very debilitating towards the big fix. Well, we were young at some stage. We weren't born old. Long long time ago, (laughs) Exactly. So, again, it goes back to the confidence that you will make mistakes. I mean, kids fall all the time, and they get up, and then they move on. I think South Africa is changing. There was a time when if you're a failure, nobody wanted to touch you. And now it's like, get up and do it again. We've seen, with a lot of people going into business and tough times coming, we've seen so many failures that it's, it's kind of common now. You know, thank God, or thankfully, we don't have the problem that we hear about of Japan where people commit suicide mm-hmm. when things have gone wrong. You know, things go wrong and you fail, and, but you do know that you can come back and try again. Not always, a lot of not, not always the case in South Africa. You can't always just spring to your feet again. Yeah, you, I, know, you know that, music. Yeah, but I think it's changing. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's changing... I mean, I, I know somebody, I know of someone, I know, well, I knew him well, actually, he committed suicide when his business went mm-hmm. under. 
Um, I mean, we still have some of those problems. But I, I think I see a lot of people who will tell you that things haven't gone well. And I met a guy, his number is... is he used to have an 082990 number, mm. the first guy's German photocom number. So I've been trying to get a hold of you. What's your number? He says, oh, I've got a 078 number. If a man has got a 078 number, <laughs> you know that he's gone through some really hard times. Mm. <laughs> and he's learned and he's bounced back, you know. Musicus, why we are recording this conversation uh, in front of a television screen and uh, South Africa are currently playing Australia yeah. in the Cricket World Cup. Uh, by yeah. the time our conversation ends or by the time you listen to this, obviously we'll know the result. Yeah. But the reason why I raise that is uh, you also talk about the importance of sport in yeah. fixing South Africa. You say it can help address race issues, gender-based violence, the global sports industry worth 615 billion US dollars. You call on government to invest in sport to create employment. Um, we are a country, again, brimful of sports people. We haven't looked at the sports issue uh, on the Fix SA series before. How can sport help fix a country? Well, it's a huge industry. The tail end of the, of the industry is big. There's broadcasting, there's a lot of other things. So what do you do? Firstly, we have a lot of people who haven't finished metric or for whom I think while we fix our education system. So we need to build sports academies. Now, not everybody's going to be a cricketer, but they'll be groundsmen, cricket groundsmen. They'll, learn, they'll know how to take care of the grass. They'll know how to take care of the stadium, how to build a lot of those kinds of things. They'll know how to broadcast. And this is particularly important now that there's been a democratization, excuse the cliche, the democratization of media. So you're going to have, you probably have very localized or very sports companies or organizations. Those things keep people employed. The first thing to consider is that we want people off the street. They may not be mega millionaires. That's all right. But they'll be able to be somewhere between seven in the morning and nine at night. And they'll have some, some money to be able to buy their own bread and afford a place to stay. So that's what we need in soccer. If you go to a, to a lot of townships where there used to be sports ground, now you find shopping malls and some RTP houses and squatter camps. Those things are really necessary, but they're not creating jobs. A soccer field, a cricket, gra cricket grounds are as good as a factory. They're absolutely important. You can learn how to fail when you play sport. You can learn how to celebrate success. I guess you learn the power of collaboration. Uh, it's a metaphor for many things in life. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I mean, if you look at Larry King, Larry King became a great broadcaster. He used to sit up there while his friends were playing sport and he'd be the announcer. And so and so did this and that and that. Mm. It excited him. So he did not end up in sports as a sports broadcaster, but he ended up in the media business. So that's what those are the kind of opportunities it offers. I met Larry King many, many years ago. I, yeah. I did a, a magazine interview with him, and I was uh, I was quite amazed because he had uh, he came down to the interview and he was wearing a dressing gown. Yeah, and I thought to myself come on man you know you're doing an interview here and he absolutely insisted he gave me 10 minutes to do the interview because he had to go to the spa so I never and I'm not talking about SPAR I'm talking about the spa and I, 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 I never forgave him for that because while unfortunately um, like all good things you know we, we, are, we are limited by time we've come to the end of the conversation but I want to end with this you conclude in your book that people by nature are both fragile and fallible. Mm. You go on to say, don't let the cracks and crevices of human imperfection imprison your spirit. Um, let me have some closing thoughts here. You are mm. confident that we can break the shackles of that prison and uh, enter your, your iron dome of optimism. Without a doubt. I think we, um, 
I know that we're going to be one of the greatest nations in the world. Uh, it's a question of time. I mean, we punch way above our weight uh, in the kind of people we've produced, in the kind of politics we once commanded. We've slipped, without a doubt. Um, but that's what happens. Uh, that's why the liberating parties often lose after 30 years, because there's a generation that does not understand what the organization was about, its ideals uh, within the organization, and outside who don't have the sympathies for the problems that caused the liberation in the first place. Mm. Do you still ride horses? No, I've never ridden horses. I was outside. I was just standing with my mom. It's just a horse. It's just a horse horse that attacked you. A wayward horse, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Muzi Kuzwaya, thank you so much for joining me on the Fix SA podcast here on MoneyWeb. I enjoyed the conversation. I'm Jeremy Max. Thanks for listening to this Fix SA podcast brought to you by the Industrial Development Corporation. For more episodes posted every second Friday, go to moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.